You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Well, friends, today we are continuing our series called Hold Fast through the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. So if you have a Bible, if you could turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 3 through 10 from the NIV. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 through 10. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our trouble, you have promised to be present. That in our tribulation, you have given us great and exceeding promises that give us hope. I pray today that those truths and promises would become real to our hearts. For those who are struggling, for those who feel that they're on the verge of giving up, or maybe they already have, I pray that you would speak to them today. Put courage into their hearts and would you enable all of us to persevere. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that today it would become so clear why Jesus alone is our salvation and the only one worth truly living for. By the power of your spirit, speak to us. We ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Never surrender. Like an adrenaline shot of courage, Britain's great prime minister, Winston Churchill, spoke these two words when millions of lives and many nations were entrenched in the brutal Second World War. It was a call to persevere, and many did. 
But when it was all over, people came out of it all differently. Some marriages became stronger. Others fell apart. Some friendships were fortified while others disintegrated. Some countries banded together, others divided. Because trials can change a nation. And we all know that trials can change a person. Some people experience trials and they grow bitter. We've seen it. We've experienced it. But there are others who are transformed by the experience. So our question this morning is, what makes the difference? When we face adversity, we must persevere. But how and why? The Thessalonian church that the Apostle Paul and others had planted just a few years before, they were facing many pressures. First, there were those who were persecuting them. That is to say, there were people in that city who opposed their Christian faith and were doing what they could to stop them. It is important for us to understand that that is a definition of persecution. Because I often hear Christians use persecution in a way that doesn't fit that description. When you run a red light and you get pulled over and get a huge ticket for it, you are not being persecuted. That's you breaking the law and being held accountable for it. Persecution is when those who are opposed to your faith actively oppose you. And all this for the Thessalonians at a time when Christianity enjoyed no protection or covering from the government. In fact, the opposite was true. Rome at that time was quite suspicious of Christians due to their refusal to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and their refusal to worship the Roman gods, which for them would threaten to destabilize their society. There was persecution. But these men and women were also dealing with internal pressures that Paul simply calls trials. We'll learn later in this letter that there were some false teachers who were bringing confusion. And there were idle busybodies amongst the church who were stoking drama. In short, the odds were stacked against them. But they persevered. And Paul writes in this second letter, among many reasons, to encourage them to continue. And I believe that this is recorded for us as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, I believe answers three questions about perseverance. Is it required? How is it possible? And is it even worth it? Knowing how the gospel answers these questions will enable us to become people who persevere. So first, 
Is it even necessary? Is it required? To that, Paul says, yes. Number one, perseverance is required. Why? Because if you follow Jesus, you will face trouble. The way that Paul talks about troubles and tribulations and adversity and opposition in the Christian life in general and to the Thessalonians specifically displays displays very clearly that we should expect trouble in this life and therefore prepare to persevere through them. If you have your Bibles open, look again at verse four and five of 2 Thessalonians chapter one. Therefore, he says, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. There always has been and always will be a temptation for every follower of Jesus to think that when you face obstacles and opposition, that something strange is happening to you. It's certainly been the case for me in my Christian life, and I'm sure it has been the case for you, that everything is going fine until you face opposition. And then you wonder, what in the world is happening? Why is this happening? Where is God in all this? And you're made to feel as if something strange is happening in the Christian life. But Paul says here and elsewhere, far from it. The fact that you are experiencing trouble and tribulation in the kingdom of God is actually an evidence that the kingdom of God is at work in your life. Yay! <laughs> To put it another way, trial and trouble is not a bug, it's a feature of the Christian life. Among the many ways I serve my dear mother in Illinois, one of the ways is tech support. My mom often calls me, says, hey, do you have time? Something strange is happening to me. Okay, mom, what's happening? Well, all these banners are showing up on my computer and on my phone and there's all this like information on there, like something's wrong. There's a bug in the system. Something's wrong with my computer. Why are all these things showing? Mom, those are notifications. You have your notifications turned on. They indicate and inform you that you have an email or a message, perhaps from one of your sons. Mom, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Oh, it's designed that way. See, many of us, we face opposition and adversity and we think it's a bug, but Paul says, oh no, it's actually a feature of the Christian life. And that helps us understand what Paul means when he says, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Here's the logic. If the kingdom of God is breaking into our world and through hearts that receive Jesus Christ, 
and live lives that reflect him, then we should expect opposition. And when the opposition arises, it is an evidence that you are truly following Jesus. Or as the saying goes, if everybody likes you, you're probably doing something wrong. (laughs) If your experience of the Christian life is like everyone likes me and affirms me and agrees with everything I say. Like, well, I don't know if you're preaching Jesus. You can expect adversity. You can expect opposition in the Christian life. Let me give you just a little sample of how often this is repeated by Jesus himself and the other writers of the New Testament. Jesus himself said of his own life and ministry in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? That is his rejection, opposition, and crucifixion. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Paul the apostle, the author of this letter, said in the book of Acts, Chapter 14, verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Put that on your coffee cup. Or the apostle Peter, in chapter four of his first letter, verse 12 to 13, says, dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Notice the pattern. Suffering leads to glory. There's no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. The crucifixion precedes the resurrection. And that is how it is in the Christian life. We should expect that there will be opposition. We should expect that there will be trouble and tribulation in this life. We are told that in advance so that when it comes, we're not surprised but rather prepared to persevere. So then what does it mean when Paul says that their perseverance in the face of trouble is evidence that God's judgment is right? Again, here's Paul's logic. If indeed the path to glory is through suffering, that is the way that it is, then God allowing his people to endure trouble is a vindication that they are on the right path. God is shown to be righteous in allowing it into their lives. That is a part of the Christian life. But there's another reason. God is also justified in allowing trouble because of what it produces in our lives if we cling to Jesus in the midst of it. Growing faith and increasing love. Friends, whether we like it or not, one of the key ways that we grow is through trials. 
And therefore, what Paul is saying is God is justified in allowing them for they show the genuineness of our faith. And we can become strengthened within them. We see this to be so over and over again in the scriptures. We also see it throughout the history of the church. As I was preparing this week, I was struck by a story that famous Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe told. During World War II, when the enemy invaded North Africa, all the missionaries that had been placed there and had been working there to promote the gospel and plant churches, they had to flee. They had to flee. And there was this great concern amongst the missionaries over the churches that they left behind. They were afraid that these new Christians and these new works were gonna fall apart and and fall away. And because of the war, there was gonna be no communication with them. They were genuinely concerned that this might be the end of those churches there in that part of North Africa. But to their surprise, some years later, without any communication, when the war ended and the missionaries returned, they were shocked to discover not only had the churches not failed, but they discovered strong, thriving churches. The sufferings of war purified the church and helped strengthen the faith of true believers. What an encouragement for us. And I've seen this happen in the lives of other people around me who making the decision to trust in Jesus in spite of the opposition that they face only grew stronger. So maybe today, what many of us need is an adjustment of our expectations in the Christian life. If your expectation of the Christian life is nothing but ease and comfort, you didn't get that from the Bible. And the troubles that you might consider strange are very normal, expected. In fact, I would suggest that the early church would not be surprised that we would experience opposition in our day. They might be surprised that we experience such ease and comfort. They'd be like, really? Maybe we need a shift in our expectations. But maybe we also need an affirmation that if you are going through opposition and trial and struggle, that what you're experiencing right now is not strange. And you are not alone. There is a temptation when you are suffering and you just feel that you've got a target on your back. How often do we feel like that? Like this satanic onslaught and people at work or in your community are like actively opposing you. It can be very isolating as if you're the only one. But the New Testament says, welcome to the club. (laughs) Welcome to club tribulation. Come on in. You are not alone. On the path to glory, we expect that there will be suffering. Is perseverance really necessary? Absolutely. 
That's the first thing that you must know. Perseverance is required. Okay, Paul, we get it. Perseverance is required because suffering leads to glory in the Christian life. But where do we find the strength to persevere? And what about all those people that are causing us trouble? Is perseverance required? Yes. But secondly, is perseverance possible? Paul's answer is yes. Perseverance is not only required, it is possible. See, Paul goes on to explain because he knows that pressure and persecution will naturally raise questions for people following Jesus in this world. Where is God in all of this? And what about the people that are so against me and so against Christ and so against the church? Like, what about them? Let's be honest. This is a problem for many of us. Like, God, do they just all get a free pass and it doesn't even matter? See, Paul knows this and he addresses it. Look at verses six and the beginning of verse seven. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. How is perseverance possible when it seems like the wicked are getting away with everything and I am overburdened? Well, in this section, Paul addresses both questions. First, we've learned that God was allowing these troublers, God was allowing these persecutors some rope. And in a sovereign way, this allowance was the very cause for the growth of faith and love in the church. But does that mean that God is unjust or that he doesn't care or that he's absent regarding those who are troublemakers? That's how it often feels when you're facing tribulation. That is often how it feels when you're facing opposition and adversity. I've felt this way many times. In fact, this week, preparing for this sermon, I reflected on these like key moments when there was like very clear opposition from the enemy and often through people against the work that we were doing. And in the moment, it just seemed so unfair. Like they just get to do whatever they want. And in that way, our wrestling is very similar to the famous wrestling of Psalm 73. If you haven't read it, you should. It's one of my favorite psalms. Because in the psalm, the psalmist Asaph wrestles saying, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they just get away with everything? There's no lightning bolts from heaven. You're like, here I am trying to follow Jesus and everything's so hard. And then these people, you know, who like, they don't know God, just everything goes well for them. You're like, hey, like, how are you living your life? Oh, my self-care routine is just hate God and do whatever I want. My life is great. And you're like, what? Is God there? Is he just? These are the questions that often arise in the midst of trouble and tribulation. You may have asked these questions yourselves, but Paul's answer is this. God is just 
And here's why. First, you need to know that God's allowance does not mean his approval. In a different but similar way that God allows you and I to make dumb mistakes in the Christian life, and he's very patient with us in that, wanting to draw us to repentance, his patience does not mean his approval. And in a broader way, the same is true when we look out at the world. His patience or his allowance for people to make free, real decisions in this world is not his endorsement of those decisions. More than that, he says in verse six, God is just. And this will be shown in that he will pay back or hold to account those who do evil. That is to say, there is a plan for just recompense to those who oppose God and his people. In short, do not jump to conclusions when the wicked prosper and trouble you for your faith. Do not jump to conclusions. It is this long-range view of divine justice that keeps us on our feet. Now, there's more to unpack about that future in a moment. But in the present, we simply must remember that God's allowance does not mean his approval. He is just. And there will be a moment when that justice is meted out. But there's more. Notice in verse seven, God will also give relief to you who are troubled. Isn't that wonderful? And to us as well, Paul says. God will also provide relief that also makes perseverance possible. And though Paul does not here get specific, I just want to highlight a variety of ways in which we see in the New Testament God providing relief in the present. Let me just mention three out of one of Paul's other letters, 2 Corinthians. There's spiritual relief, practical relief, and relational relief. It might even be worth writing these down because they are things that we can put into practice in our time of trouble and adversity. First, one of the ways God provides relief is spiritual. In the present moment, when we are facing trouble, knowing in our minds and in our hearts that God is just and that he will make things right in the end does actually bring relief in the present. Let me use a poor illustration. Many of my illustrations are poor, but just go with it because I have the mic, so you don't have a choice. Imagine that you are experiencing pain in a part of your body. Some of you are like, amen, he's a prophet. (laughs) Let's say you're experiencing a great pain in your left arm. Comes out of nowhere. There are two ways in which this is difficult. First, there's the pain and discomfort itself. It hurts. But the second reason that pain is difficult is because you begin to wonder what it means for the future. And if you're like me, you're a chronic overthinker. 
So I get a pain in my left arm. I'm like, I'm going to die. Just ask my wife, like pain, I, I'm, I'm going to die. In fact, last year I had all these weird like medical things. And so I kept going back to the doctor. And finally, no joke, my doctor's like, Tim, you're in your 40s. That's what's happening. I was like, oh, okay. That's my diagnosis. Like you're in your 40s now. Okay, thank you. The question often is, what does this present pain indicate about future pain, right? You're like, I'm dealing with the pain now, but what does it mean for the future? Now imagine that you take that pain in your left arm and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, yes, this hurts now, but upon my examination, here's the good news. It's nothing serious. And in the long run, you will recover. Oh, what a relief that would be. What a relief that would be knowing that long-term perspective would bring relief as you deal with the present pain. This is how it was for Paul. This is how he experienced spiritual relief. It was knowing how the story would end brought him comfort to deal with pain in the present. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God himself. And he goes on to reflect on the future hope of resurrection. Friends, you can experience relief as you meditate on the word of God. His great and exceeding promises that though what you face now is very difficult, you can hang on to these promises and knowing how the story ends brings you relief in the present as you deal with your trouble. As you pray, as you cry out to God, as you pray the truths that you find in his word, you can experience relief. But second, there's practical relief. Paul is often making reference to Christians who provided practical means such as money and food and shelter to those who were suffering and experiencing adversity as a way of bringing relief. Let me give you another example from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And speaking of a financial gift given from one church to another, Paul writes, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in what? The relief of the saints. This is encouraging because this is something that we can do now. How can we practice providing relief for others? Well, ask others if they're going through trial or if they're going through adversity or experiencing opposition. Ask them what they're going through and ask them how you can help. Sometimes it brings such a relief just to know that you have a, a meal provided or some sort of practical assistance in responsibilities that would otherwise be so difficult in a time of trial and tribulation. There are so many ways that all of us in this room can provide practical relief for those who are in times of trouble. We can practice even today. Will we ask if others need help? And if you are the one in trouble, are you willing to ask for help? And that leads to the third way in which God provides relief 
in times of trouble. It's relational, spiritual relief, practical relief, and relational relief. That is the comfort of people who can talk and pray together, which brings great relief, especially in times of trouble. Whether you are experiencing trouble individually or as a group or a family or a church, it is a powerful thing to process things together relationally and in prayer. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 7, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by what? The coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I can rejoice still more. See, as it is with practical relief, we can provide relational relief with our presence. It can be as simple as a phone call, a text message, sharing in one of our groups a women's or men's Bible study, a community group here on a, on a Sunday, just talking about the trial, talking about the opposition, praying together. We have an opportunity to do that even this morning in our time of worship and prayer. These are means by which God makes perseverance possible. So is it really possible for someone like me to persevere in the face of opposition and trouble even when it seems like people are getting away with it who are troubling me? Yes, because God is aware and he is just. And he will deal with it in the end. But God also makes it possible by providing relief here and now in the moment. But the natural question is when? When is he gonna, when is he gonna deal with all of this ultimately and set things right? And to that question, Paul makes it very clear. Is it required? Is perseverance required? Absolutely. Is it possible? Oh, yes, God makes it possible. But third, is it worth it? Is perseverance really worth it? And Paul gives a resounding yes to that question. Perseverance is required, it's possible. And it is worth it, thirdly. Having stated that God is just and he is aware of our need for justice, the natural question is how and when and to that he says at the end of verse seven, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Church, Jesus Christ is coming back. I'm just going to say it again, because this is election year, and some of you are wondering. (laughs) But it's 2020. Jesus Christ will come again. He will come again. And that means that whatever happens now and in this year, will neither mean the salvation for the world, definitely not, nor will it mean the end of the world. Jesus Christ is coming again. He came first to bear judgment on our behalf, but he will come again to bring judgment and put an end to all that is wrong in the world. Paul says perseverance is worth it. 
Because the reward comes at the end. So what does that mean for those who accept Jesus? And what does that mean for those who reject Jesus? Well, first, for those who reject Jesus, there will be a reward. But it is the reward of retribution. And so he says in verse eight and nine, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What is Paul saying here? That's a sobering statement. Well, if God is just and he is the ultimate judge, then he must judge sin and evil. God is also love. And therefore he's made a way for all to be spared this judgment by sending his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to live, die, and rise on our behalf and in our place so that by trusting in him, we can know that the judgment that we deserve has already been taken. That is the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who refuse the gospel, what hope do they have? It's like someone drinking poison and saying, give me a cure. And you hand them the cure. Here's the antidote. You must drink it. And they say, no. Whose fault is it if they don't recover? Is it not their own? The antidote was given. It was offered. But they refused to take it. Then where does the responsibility lie? For those who refuse the gospel, or to use Paul's wording, who choose not to obey the gospel, they are choosing to pay the price for themselves. And the consequences are eternal. For God is eternally good and holy and just. And so to reject him means to be eternally separated from him and all that is good and holy and just. If God did not judge sin, then he would be unjust. So, for those who object to a statement like this, maybe this is your first time hearing the Bible, reading those words, you're like, whoa. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to forgive you and give you a, a second chance free of charge? He's already done that. He offers it to you today. Receive it. But are you asking him to leave you alone? Then that is what you will get. And that is what hell is. To use Paul's words here, to be shut out from the presence of God. And the door is essentially locked from the inside. C.S. Lewis famously stated it like this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful 
rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sin and at cost, give people a fresh start? He did that at Calvary. To forgive them? But they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone? That is what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say, your will be done to God. Or those to whom God, in the end, says, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. This is a sobering reminder about ultimate justice. Everyone talks about justice. But if we reject Jesus Christ, then we will all be found on the wrong side of justice, even while we ask for it, because we have all sinned. But what if you do decide to trust in Jesus? Well, then the reward is not retribution when he returns. The reward is rest. And so he says in verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. It is the ultimate rest and relief where we marvel in awe and wonder at our God. Why? We do not need to fear judgment for Christ has already taken our judgment. Well, for who? Is it for really good people? Is it for people whose average church attendance during the year is like 48 out of 52 Sundays? Like, well, who is it? It's anyone who believes. That's what Paul says. Anyone who believes. Because the gospel says we are not saved on the basis of what we can do. We are saved on the basis of what Christ has already done for us. And what is the reward? When Jesus Christ returns, the reward is that he will wipe away every single tear from your eye. The reward is there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more opposition, no more adversity, no more death. For the former things will one day pass away. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. And what we must do is drag that future reality into our present circumstance and hold fast to our hope that we might experience comfort to persevere. Here's what you need to know in your trouble. To put it in a statement, the presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. The presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. For God himself suffered when he entered our world. 
if what we know about the cross is true and we believe that it is, then we can even expect God in places of suffering and tribulation and opposition. And though there may be mystery, it is somehow being worked for glory, for Christ's crucifixion led to Christ's resurrection. Christ's perseverance is the source for your perseverance. In other words, People who ultimately persevere are those who trust in a savior who already persevered on their behalf. And since your relationship with God has changed by believing in the gospel, so your relationship to trials and tests changes. As J. Oswald Sanders says, severe testing is not the mark of divine disapproval. Rather, the reverse. Only ore which bears precious metal is subject to processing and crushing. Only alloy in which there is valuable metal is placed within the refiner's fire. Since God has pledged himself never to subject his children to tests beyond their ability to bear, a severe test is, in reality, his vote of confidence. Suffering is given God's permission only to the degree that it serves his greater purpose. And we see this in Jesus Christ. When we look to the cross, all that he gave to rescue us, to redeem us, and one day resurrect us, the answer to our trouble and tribulation cannot be that he doesn't love us. He's never promised us the absence of pain but he has promised us his presence within it and that he would carry us through it to the end. So for those who believe in Christ, trouble and opposition and adversity, they will be chapters in your story, but it's not how the story ends. It's not how the story ends. We may not understand why what happens happens. But we know what the answer can't be. It cannot be that God is not just. It cannot be that he doesn't care or that he doesn't love us. And so in our sorrow or in blessing, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord and press on. And I pray that we would. Let's make that choice today. Heavenly Father, I pray for those again, who are on the verge of giving up and waving the white flag, as it were, I pray that right now they would make another choice. A choice to cling to you. A choice to look again at the truth of the cross and the empty tomb. A choice to trust you with their trouble and to trust you with the whole of their lives, that they might find relief in the present as they look forward to their glorious hope. I pray for those who have given up. I pray that you would draw them back to yourself this morning. I pray for those who have never started with you, who've never believed on Jesus Christ. I pray that right now, those men and women would realize there is no salvation in this world apart from Jesus. There is no hope ultimately in this world apart from Jesus. And I pray that now they would make that decision 
to say, Jesus, I believe you came and lived for me. You died on a cross for my sin and you rose again on the third day to give me new life so that I would not need fear judgment, but long for your coming. I pray that they would make that decision right now. And as we respond, may your Holy Spirit move and put courage into our hearts that we may persevere. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.